welcome to episode eight of the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Bruce Daisley is the author of this year's best-selling business book, The Joy of Work, and the super successful podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. He is also European Vice President of Twitter and has worked at Google, YouTube, Comic Relief and, as he explains in his book, plenty of less glamorous places too. Campaign Magazine called Bruce one of the most talented people in media. He's been in the Evening Standard's top 1,000 most influential Londoners for four consecutive years. He's also been called the fantasy hire most leaders would love to make. I was thrilled to interview Bruce in person for our podcast and see firsthand his genuine passion for making work more enjoyable and fulfilling. There's no doubt, as I'm sure you'll agree, this is a man on a mission. What I loved about our conversation is that Bruce is not just about the theory. He's full of practical, everyday ideas we can all try out immediately. Find out why you need to have a purge on meetings, send fewer emails, and why finding the purpose in our work, that why, is actually not enough. We talk about the importance of psychological safety at work. We discuss the shortcomings of the employee engagement industry, the limitations that leaders have on building the right culture and how, as communicators, we need to address the empathy gap. Now, don't worry about capturing all the research and all the books we're about to discuss. They're all in the show notes on AB's website. Just sit back, relax and enjoy the dynamic and inspiring Bruce Daisley. I wonder if we could just start with what sparked your initial interest in this whole subject of making work more meaningful, more enjoyable. There's a lovely line in your book that you use, which is you say that in many of the places you first worked in, the restaurants and the hotels and the pubs and the bars, these places seem to thrive despite their bosses. And I wondered whether it was that aspect of your curiosity being piqued about why some places were working really well in terms of making people happy and fulfilled and why others potentially weren't. Yeah, exactly that. Very much so. I knew very resolutely, you know, I did a lot of factory jobs, fast food jobs, bar jobs, hotel jobs when I was studying and, you know, at school even. And I'd been to some places that were incredible and some places that were less energised. So that was in the back of my mind. But in addition, when I started work, I started work at Capital Radio. Uh And when I started work there, it was a bit like an A-B test because there was another company where people were doing identical jobs. And Uh the people used to say to me who worked there, they used to say, our culture's terrible. Uh Everyone's really unhappy. People were desperate to leave. They were often applying for jobs at our place. Now, the place that I worked, which is part of Capital Radio, I think even the CEO... Capital Radio would accept that it was quite a chaotic place. It was a tiny little offshoot and it was, you know, underfunded and under-resourced. And it was in one article described as like the faulty towers of media. (laughs) Um, It was this functioning, chaotic work environment. Right. But what became clear to me was that there was an affinity amongst the people who worked there, which was remarkable and amazing. And a culture that, we, you know, we were there till 9.30 every night working or 9 o'clock easily every night. And there was this bond. So I was fascinated. OK, so it wasn't about resource. It wasn't about the bosses because our bosses were pretty absent. There was some mojo, some driving force that sort of united everyone there. And so consequently, I found myself, you know, 20 years on at Twitter. And I adore my job at Twitter and I laugh every day. But 20 years on, when the culture maybe lagged a bit and dipped a bit, I was interested in what steps I could take to help fix the culture. And the thing that struck me was that when I started to look at the evidence for it, when I started to explore these things, it just struck me that Culture isn't, based on the evidence I've seen, culture often isn't mandated by bosses. It's not laid out in an email from bosses. It's not in two PowerPoint slides that boss say, here's the new culture. It's often more ethereal than that. It's often quite intangible. It's hard to put your finger on what causes it. But 
I'm very much of the belief that culture can be created by the participants in it as much as by the leaders of it. And I think that's, for me, one of the big differences in this book compared to all the other things I've read about culture change in particular. This is not a top-down approach. This isn't really a book, is it, for leaders? I mean, one of my colleagues read it and said to me, great, Katie, next time we have a one-to-one, why don't we have one of those walking meetings? So this is something you can put into practice yourself. Are you slightly, would I say, cynical about those kind of traditional top-down culture change programmes? Yeah, I mean, the reason why I'm cynical about them, yes I am, is that there's a whole load of narrative fallacy about bosses and how they determine things. In fact, one of the reasons why business school has been so heavily critiqued over the last few years is what happens is we send people to business school. Business school students are taught, they're given papers of a situation and they're instructed to find the solution. And it's meant to be this reductive thing where bosses come up with answers. Bosses come up with answers. And it's the floor of the case study methodology because nothing is as precise as that. But quite often, the secret of success is generally when there's a lot of people, you know, a small team of people adjusting things gradually as they go along, not a boss stepping out of their corner office saying, here's the answer. Yes. And it's a problem. In fact, you know, probably one of the best illustrations of that is something called the Marshmallow Challenge. And uh, the marshmallows exist twice in psychology, in workplace psychology. One in the marshmallow test where you give little children a marshmallow and you see whether they can delay gratification. So you say to them, have a marshmallow now. Or if you wait two minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And the remarkable thing is it appears that the children who are able to delay gratification are able subsequently to go on to more success in life. But that's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about the marshmallow challenge. And this is a team exercise that anyone can set with a team. And it involves, I think you're given 18 pieces of spaghetti, a marshmallow, a metre of sticky tape, a metre of string. And as a team, you're instructed to build the biggest tower that you can. The biggest height wins. And what you find is that the best performing group, obviously, are structural engineers. So let's take structural engineers whose job it is to build things out of the picture. The best performing group are four-year-old children. The worst performing group are business school graduates. (laughs) Why? Because business school graduates have been taught, like this is the fundamental flaw in the way that we've instructed them. Business school graduates are taught there's an answer there. And so they either, in their groups, they either want to be the person who discovers that answer or the person who leads the team where that answer was discovered. So what often happens when you observe them is they go sort of 10 minutes planning, you know, strategizing, all the things that they've learned to do. 12 minutes ticking by, 13 minutes ticking by. We're getting to, like, we've got 18 minutes to do this. You get to sort of 15 minutes, someone picks up the marshmallow and realises it's so heavy that any time it encounters these pieces of dry spaghetti, these spaghetti snaps. Whereas the kids, in the first minute, non-verbally, they grab the marshmallow immediately, they're squishing it. They're... So the kids are experimenting. And actually, what you find is that, as a metaphor for work, experimentation, adaptation, adjustment based on the realities is a far better way to reach your goal than someone who somehow wants to be perceived as the discoverer of these insights and genius. So that's my feeling. So, you know, the danger when it comes to workplace culture, workplace culture is a participant experience. If people feel like they're a stakeholder in something, if they feel like they can play a part in shaping it, like the kids with the marshmallow, culture ends up in a far happier place than someone who's saying, this is what the culture is around here from the corner office. And as a consequence, it feels disconnected from the weight of the marshmallow. It feels disconnected from the burden of the actual job. And that's so interesting because that explains the importance of what you talk about around psychological safety, that permission to experiment, to get it wrong, to say it wasn't exactly failure. We're one step closer to success. That didn't work, but we're going to try again. And being able to speak up and experiment then is really important. Absolutely. And look, if people don't observe this psychological safety, maybe if their workplace has got psychological safety, then it's interesting to examine our client relationships with regard to psychological safety. You know, quite often the adage in the average world is clients get the advertising they deserve and specifically if you were to diagnose that you would say when there is psychological safety so when there is this benefit of the trust this benefit of the doubt this trust these a relationship where people can speak candidly to each other when that exists then what follows from that relationship is a higher quality of 
honesty, integrity, and therefore better quality of work. Hmm. And so whether it's your workplace relationships, whether it's your relationship with your boss, if you can build some psychological safety where if something's bad, you can say to your boss, boss, I'm really unhappy with how that played out. Or boss, I've just done something and I want to flag. It was a catastrophic error. When I was first at Twitter, we tried to sell something. It, we, it was part of the, a sales initiative. We tried to sell something in a way that was a massive experiment and it went disastrously wrong. And no one ever said to me that was a bad mistake. They just said, oh, okay, well, we learned that. Let's just write down what we've learned. And, you know, next time that comes along, we at least we'll know that we tried it. And I think, you know, that psychological safety seems to be the holy grail of most workplace environments. Yes, absolutely. Now, I just want to wind back and set the context, the bigger context. You interviewed William Kahn, I know, mm. on your podcast. It was a fascinating podcast because he came up with the whole idea and coined the phrase employee engagement, which a lot of your work, I suppose, fits under that mm. umbrella. What was surprising to me, actually, about the podcast that you did with him was that I don't know if he ever really intended a 30-year industry to bring up around that one paper that he wrote in 1990. What's your opinion, your personal opinion of that industry that has sprung up over that time, decades of it, to measure, drive and uh, curate this workplace engagement environment? Yeah, the quotation from William Kahn sprung to mind because I think he said, with regard to the engagement industry that sprung up, I think he said that he'd been disappointed, shocked and dismayed by the industry that sprung up. You know, my feeling is, I get it now, I run this podcast, I've done almost 80 episodes of a podcast about workplace culture, and when I was set about this, I had no idea that the engagement industry and the employee experience industry was so evolved and so sophisticated. I was just doing it as a participant. Participant observer, I just wanted to fix workplace culture, and I was dissatisfied with what Amazon was offering me as book choices. I was dissatisfied with it. It's only now, having done... 80 hours of podcasts about this and written a book on it that, you know, I can see very clearly that there's a whole industry there. So I routinely get pitched guests for my podcast all the time. And the two sorts of guests that I generally get, I get bosses and my rule is no CEOs. And that's because white guys in their 40s or 50s coming in and telling me how they fixed culture just doesn't jibe with the way that I've seen workplace environments, those guys were never responsible for the culture, never. They might have been in the building for them, but they were never responsible. There's often either someone with high EQ sitting at their side actually creating the culture. Right. Or these people across the business who are like the ambassadors who are protecting people from that boss. But the notion that that boss was responsible for what happened day to day, you know, you often have some of the top of companies executionally very strong. They may be a great deal maker. They may be strategically quite adept. But often the nuance that comes around it, it's a bit like one person might carve the turkey, but, you know, someone else dresses the plate. So my rule on the podcast is no CEOs. It just makes it quicker to reject people. And the other one you get approached all the time is people who've got technology about employee engagement, employee oh. experience. And I'm always just cautious of it because, number one, they always come and present, our app is the best app, and here's the reason why. And it might be the best app, but I often ask them to send me some data or an evidence or a paper on it. And I'm just always cautious of those things because my perspective is I'm just someone who's worked in... I've worked at Google, I've worked at YouTube, I've worked at Twitter, I've worked, but I've also worked in loads of legacy British businesses. And I've witnessed firsthand, firstly, how those app systems and things are gamed by bosses and by employees. But secondly, there's also survey fatigue sitting in with it. Oh, totally. Sitting in with a lot of people now. And, you know, people are so continuously being asked, what do you think of this, what do you think of this, what do you think of this, what do you think of that, you know, to some extent, it's a bit like we've just learned that if you just say you're happy, these surveys will go away. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's just simpler, just say you're happy. I've been in situations where we've given a boss a bad 360 and it basically polluted our relationship with that boss for the next year, but the boss stayed. Yes. And I guess what you do in those situations is you normally use the opportunity of being asked for feedback is, you know, to cry for help. It's like, please save us from this. But I tell you what, when you're not saved, you learn a lesson from that. You just think, I'm not going to be honest next time. It actually wasn't worth the three hours of extra one-to-ones I had, the emotional baggage that I had to deal with, having to deal with this sort of needy boss. 
yeah. coming to terms with bad feedback they'd got. And so that's it. So I'm always cautious. Look, you know, it's a long answer, but in the same way that William Kahn sort of disappointed and dismayed with what's happened, I'm very cautious of that industry, really. Yeah, but what you say, though is good news for us as communicators, because actually you're saying you can make a big difference. One of the things you talk a lot about in the book is doing less, not more. Mm. And actually the quality of your work goes up if you take regular breaks and you try to do one thing at once. That's incredibly hard, isn't it, in today's world? I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about basically how you do less, given so many demands on us to check four different phones at the same time mm. and all the rest of it. I think it starts with a bit of real talk, you know. One of the things that we've seen, unfortunately, over the last few years is people modelling that success looks like an 80-hour week and modelling that somehow to get on in the world, we need to be working more, more, more. And the truth of it is, is that if our job remotely involves thinking and ingenuity and inventiveness, which to lesser or larger extent, all office jobs do. You know, our job is about sort of cognitive, cerebral input. And what you find is that when you look at the science of that work, our decision-making suffers when we demand more from our brain. You know, in the most extreme sense, I saw Jeff Bezos recently talking about that he wants to make three good decisions per day. And I think once you reach that sense, that cognitive power doesn't, if you make 500 decisions a day, the decisions demonstrably, no shortage of scientific papers, show that if you make hundreds of decisions per day, your decisions become really bad. The science of that is something called ego depletion. But the most graphic illustration of that is that the banking industry, there was a nine-year survey by a brilliant former banker termed an academic called Alexander Michel. And she looked at the banking industry and she gave some fascinating verbatims. So she said to people, the incidence of addiction of both drink, drug, actually anorexia, all manner of personal interventions is overwhelming in, the, in those places. And it's not because that industry attracts people who've got that addictive persona, but more what happens is when you routinely, they work for 16, 17 hour days. And what you find is that the science of ego depletion is this, is that best summary I can give you of it is by a guy called Daniel Leverton. And I know the quotation off by heart. And he said, our brains are configured to make a certain number of decisions per day. And once we reach that limit, we are unable to make any more, regardless of how important they are. So that's the science of ego depletion. The, effectively, our brains are finite rather than infinite. But the expression of that in the banking industry was that people were saying, I woke up this morning disappointed with what I'd done and my body had done last night and I was resolved I wasn't going to do it again. And what people say, and it's extraordinary, it's, it's almost remarkable to read it, what people say is they say they worked all day and then they reached a stage where it was almost as if their body was taking over and they were sort of, they returned to drink. They couldn't help, they found themselves doing some cocaine. They couldn't help, they were, you know, they, whatever their addiction was, they're returning to it. And it was almost like their body had taken over. Why? Because it's a concrete proof that when we reach that limit of our brains, our brain starts doing things that we almost feel that we're not in control of. So let's play that back into the realities of more mundane jobs. <laughs> and, you know, if we're working 40 hours a week, that's one thing. If we're working 50, that's two extra hours a day on our phone, very easily imaginable summer work, plus maybe a little bit in the weekends. You know, very easy to get to 60 hours a week where we're starting to make bad judgments on things, bad decisions. We, we're probably being a bit dismissive about something that actually is a good opportunity consequence of all those things in aggregate is we're just not doing the best possible job you know the psychology of positive science teaches us a lot of things and, and you know why people like Barbara Fredrickson and you know Alice Ison they show that when someone is in a positive read rested frame of mind they're often more collaborative it broadens their perspective to new ideas it makes them more open-minded to things when people are in a negative, read exhausted frame mm. of mind, we're more dismissive, we're more probably irrationally instinctive, mm. we make bad decisions. And so if all of us are employed in an office job to try and do a clever, expansive, creative job, exhausting ourselves is a really bad way to do that job. So then the, the point you make is how do we elect to do less? I think first it's 
coming to the realisation that mm. doing less is more. Right. And so the more that you can surface to you, your bosses, everyone you work with, right, I think we should have a purge on our meetings, we should have a purge on our emails. So let's go through the reality of what happens. Most of us who work in an office are encumbered with this gravity of trying to keep everyone in the loop. Yes, you know, absolutely. So if you work in an office for 100, 200, 300, you know, we've all got this feeling that to do our job well, we need to keep everyone in the loop. I just need to update everyone on what the plan is for the Manchester office. Just need to, you know, we're sort of, we're doing all these things. And the consequence of that is that meetings become heavily staffed and long, update emails become long, and the truth of it is these. If we were candid, I know that when we see those emails, we presume with guilt that everyone else is reading those emails. Yes. But if we're honest, no one is reading those emails. Absolutely. No one. I always think if you put a child in your brain and uh, <laughs> for a day and you showed a child the meetings you were having, a child would go... This is silly. You're not paying any attention in these meetings. You're doing your bit. You're sort of dipping in and out of other people's bit, but you're in a state of sort of exhausted inattention. And that's the reality. So if we were honest about that, one of the things that, you know, is remarkable about psychological safety is that when you've got 20 people in a room, you're less likely to achieve psychological safety Mm. than if you've got six people in a room or five people in a room. Five of us around the table talking about a plan were far more likely to be honest and open. 20 people around the table, we moderate the impression that we give to other people because we don't want to appear ignorant, we don't want to appear obstructive, so we just don't say anything. Mm. And so consequently, you end up with a lower quality of work when you've got 20 people in the room, but we've all got this fear of missing out. We've all got this sense that the meetings we're not in is where the good stuff's happening, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Why am I not invited to that? Whereas... (laughs) <laughs> why am I not invited to that meeting and you're just thinking what's going on in that meeting whereas when you're in the meeting you're sort of glancing at your phone you're thinking about what you're going to do when you get back to your desk you're drafting a letter that you go yeah. yeah we're not even paying attention to the meetings we're in and I think the, the best thing that any of us can do is surface these conversations with our team right Guys, here's the new way of working. No more update emails, but write a bullet point a week that maybe once a quarter, we're going to update people on what you've been doing this quarter. We sort of turn it into something more substantial, but less frequent. In addition, we're going to try and get as few people as possible in meetings, but we ask people in those meetings to just give us four or five bullet points of what they've done. So it's in a document so we can see what they've done. One organisation, Bridgewater Associates, used the webcam in the, yes. in the corner of their office, in the corner of their meeting rooms, and they just record every meeting because their view is we record them. So if someone subsequently says, how was that decision made? You can go in and say, oh, here's what Gary said, here's what Philippa said, and, and you can sort of go through and review it. And it's that way to try and reduce the burden of these things. Yeah, Bridgewater are really interesting, aren't they? They're incredibly transparent about everything, including how much they pay people. Yeah, everything. I'm not I'm sure I would want to work there. Just digging into email just for a second, because as communicators, I think it's fair to say we probably do add to the burden of email. Exactly what you're saying, the update email that goes to all. Sometimes we find it quite difficult to segment audiences properly. So not every email we send will be perfectly relevant for every audience. We've talked about the kind of death of email for as long as we've talked about, almost as long as we've talked about the death of print. And they're still there. It's still the backbone in many ways. If you want to reach everyone, you send an email. Do you envisage a time we'll find a better tool? An email will be redundant. Um, The interesting thing for me is if you look at high functioning teams, they're often small and they're often small, they're more creative, they're more radical. And for me, an interesting thing, I chatted to probably the number one architect in the world, a guy called Bianca Ingalls, and I wanted to get his perspective on, he was commissioned by Google to build the first building that Google have ever built. They're actually building two by him. One in King's Cross, which is the landscape, but this sort of vast, long building that about eight stories high, but half a kilometer long, whatever, it's huge. But then in addition, is building the Googleplex. And I think he was interested in how Apple had built their new building in One Infinity Loop. And the Apple building in Cupertino, so envisaged by Steve Jobs, when they went to this new building, all of the engineers who designed the products that we love refused to go there. Wow. Because they said, you know, I mean, actually, you know, the verbatims on it are filled with swear words. (laughs) But they said, 
F this, F that, F you, we are not going to that building. Verbatims, like the senior engineers. Why? Because they didn't want to create these beautiful products with constant interruptions, with like this vast open plan plates. They might look beautiful. They look like great restaurants, right? Yeah. They look like great places to spend yeah, afternoon. to hang out. Absolutely. But they're catastrophically bad. So I chatted to Bjarke Ingalls, this architect, and I was like, so when you're building the Google building, how much consideration to give to the inside and how much is it just about creating this sort of beautiful edifice outside? Oh. And he said, probably the most thoughtful answer, I was, I was literally putting in the interview with him to sort of have a go at him. I wanted to blame someone for these open plan offices that we all find ourselves in. And he said, our feeling is that when we've looked at high performance cultures and teams, they generally are a size of between 30 and 100 people, but never more. And what you find is that teams often get their energy from defining their limits and almost being restrictive about who they allow in beyond that. So he said... He looked at Building 20, which is this sort of prefabricated structure in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And it became famous because it was horrible. If you, if you and I walked past it, we'd think it was like this run-down, man-made porter cabin, sort of like wooden slats on the outside. It was, it was meant to be filled with rodents. It, was, it, had, <laughs> it had leaks. However, in about a 15-year period, it produced nine Nobel Prize-winning physicists. And so everyone was like, OK, well, there appears to be remarkable work going on there, you know, all the physicists in the world, for them all to originate from this one building is beyond remarkable. You know? Right. It's, no it's not a coincidence. Yeah. And yeah. so they looked at it and they said what happened was, because the building was so run down, people felt very comfortable with editing it. And so people would come in at the weekend with a couple of walls of plywood and they'd just put a new wall up. And so then, you know, it would just be there six people they worked with or it would just be three people they worked with in these small spaces and they were self-editing. And so Bjarke Gringle said, he looked at that and he thought, OK, the secret of teaming but collaboration is not that, you know, we're in these vast open plan plates where there's an anonymity by so many people being around us, but more allow people to create reasonable amount of privacy so they can get their work done. Yes, absolutely. So I think to your original point, is there an answer beyond email? I think we need to try to say to teams, this is what your team is charged with. Okay, you need to report to other people of what you've done, how you've deployed that. Respond back. You know, if there's any issues on a weekly basis, respond back. Otherwise, let's check in on a less frequent basis, but focus on your team. And I think teams need to be more insular. People get more work done when they can just be self-contained and then connect into the wider. Whereas at the moment, we're giving the burden in of everyone in an organisation to try and connect to everyone. Yes. And what that's doing is it's creating so many relationships. You know, if you've got an organisation of 400 people and they're all meant to keep another 400 people in the loop, the amount of connective tissue that's created there is exhausting. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you need to do is you say you've got a team of 30 people, that team needs to be interwoven with each other, but there's maybe only one or two people who connect out of that group. And the sooner we've reached that feeling, the volume of emails will fall, the volume of meetings will fall, and we'll restructure how it works. It comes back, actually, to your point about quality over yeah. quantity, concentrating on the task at hand, yeah. Less is more, basically, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And, and the thing about email is this. You know, like we learned when TED Talks first came around, that we learned that there's a difference between what's on your slides and what you communicate, in the sense that what often happens when we come to prepare slides is we type the points that we want to make. There's a difference between message sent and message received. You think by you reading your points off your slide that you've communicated them. Far from it. All you've communicated is people feel, oh, this is boring. <laughs> and, you know, it was that recognition with TED Talks when they first came around. It was like, OK, to communicate my three points I want to communicate, I need to make people's imagination tingle. I need to inspire them. I need to engage them and then get my point across. As soon as you empathise with the other side of that equation, you realise, OK, me writing my three points, whether it's on an email or a PowerPoint slide, does not do the job that I wanted it to. Yeah. And there's almost a lost in translation. We need to start by thinking, how do I get my points into that person's head? When I started Twitter London office, I hired some researchers. And the researchers, I gave them sort of, seven years ago now, but I gave them two tasks. The first one was we've got to think battleships and speedboats, you know, like we've got to wage on the seas, we've got to wage guerrilla war and military warfare. So that is, I want lots of things hitting the beach every day, 
that are sort of like these just explosions, these little fireworks of interest, they're the speedboats. But also we've got to land substantial research, that's the battleships. But a successful campaign is a combination of both. And the second thing I said to them was I said there's a difference between getting research done and getting that research into people's brains. Right, yes. And so what a research department can often end up doing is create lots of beautiful research. So then if someone goes round to the research team, they go, we've got any research on this, they go, yes, lots of it. Slides full of it. But our job is not only to create all that beautiful research, it's to put that research in people's brains. And sometimes we forget that second part of the job. So an internal comms team, absolutely, it's communicating these three points. But it's not writing those three points, it's getting those three points into people's brains. That's the job. Yes, and that's where this emphasis today on storytelling, for example, Mm. is a great idea. I'm also thinking about how your work plays into this whole debate about work-life balance. So at the moment, organisations, I mean, I read just the other day that some organisations are mandating you have to download the employee employee app on your smartphone before you join. I don't think it's long. In fact, I know it's already happening that people can wake up in the morning and say to Alexa, Alexa, play me my team brief. And that can play in their kitchens before they get into the office. Work has become a kind of thing we do, not a place we go any not for many people, not everyone. What's your view on this? Because I noticed at the uh, IOIC event recently where you spoke, you got a question about, well, maybe employees shouldn't have to. They should be able to say no or refuse to download, I don't know, work email on their smartphones. And you gave a really good answer on that one about you have to treat people as grown-ups and they have to make their own decisions around this. It's very difficult if you're mandated that you have to do it. But, you know, what you generally find is that any time that you remove agency from people, if you remove autonomy from people, it often has the opposite effect. So the example I think I was probably asked at the time, was what happens if you block people from accessing their emails in the evening? And it often has the opposite effect of what's intended. If someone has gone off to do something with a child or to go off and, you know, maybe they exercise at five o'clock on a Wednesday night, and if they've gone off to do that, but they feel like the diligent version of themselves wants to go back and just check in on how everything has gone, then by denying them the right to access that email in the evening, you actually have the opposite effect. You make them feel unhappy about going to do that sport in the afternoon. Whereas, in fact, allowing them to do that sport in the afternoon brings them a mental renewal, a freshness, a sort of a re-energisation. So creating a set of rules can be counterproductive for us sort of feeling free to, to do our jobs properly. So that's my feeling. I think any time an organisation is giving mandatories, instructions and orders to people. You're going down the route of an autocracy. You're removing any sense that this is a participant organisation where people want to be part of it. And I think if we're going to get the best from people, you can definitely do that. But, you know, the interesting thing is that I think, you know, sometimes people believe, oh, that's what good organisations do. I chatted to members of the elite British military and they said to me, the army is not based on orders. You normally know exactly what you're going to do. There's an instruction agreement where we're going. We discuss it and we go off and we do it. But it's not like, OK, guys, you know, I think we've got this notion in our head of the First World War, over the top guys and all over and you following blind orders. In the modern, more evolved world, there's a consensual approach to, right, this is where we go tomorrow. Everyone agree, right, we're going. And I think, you know, any time an organisation is mandating, any email for me, I still get them now occasionally, but, you know, any email that says mandatory, mm. immediately you've lost me. Yes. Immediately you've lost me. Don't mandate me to do something. Persuade me why I should. Or, you know, at least demonstrate that there's a reason. An email that turns up mandatory, you must answer this by five o'clock. You know, I think you lose some of the goodwill that people have. Most people want to do a good job. Yes. People start with the objective of thinking, I want to do a good job here. I want to resolve this satisfactorily. Mm. We talked a little bit about psychological safety. 
Just going back to that for a second. So we as communicators are often encouraging our leaders to be slightly more open and honest and transparent than they perhaps want to be, especially about controversial, sensitive issues and when things haven't quite gone right. So your book would suggest that actually convincing them of that is actually going to play into a happier workplace. I'm trying to give us some more demonstration that our innate knowledge that we should be more open about what's going on is actually a really good thing. It's hard to find the evidence for it, I have to say. Okay, I mean, look, you know, so I I chatted to a member of the British elite military. He said to me that the way they do it in the special forces was he will quite often at the end of the day, they do a hot debrief where everyone's sort of standing in their kit, will describe what's happened that day. And he'll say, right, so here's what happened today. So here we ran here. Everyone knows it, but he's re-describing it. And he says, okay, and in addition, here's what I did wrong. And he starts by modelling that it's okay to say what went wrong. And he sort of went through that. I did a podcast this week because I heard an example of a business where they'd tried to do this with mental health. And I think, you know, a lot of us hear about mental health and a lot of us hear about the focus on mental health, largely because, you know, the toll of it is satiously, is starting to grow and it's become sort of a, I think we're witnessing the impact of it more and more around us. And I saw an organisation, I thought, OK, that's the first time that I've seen that. So I, I actually captured it for a podcast. They did a thing in the company where they trained 10% of the company in sort of mental health skills, which is just empathetic listening and questioning, to be honest. But they also sent an email on the company of four people's mental health stories, which sometimes were things that happened to them, sometimes things that happened in their families, but people shared those things. And he said, it's transformed the discussion about mental health in our building because it no longer feels like something that happens behind closed doors to other people. It feels like something that actually there's a consciousness, there's an awareness of it, there's a dialogue on it. So look, it doesn't have to always be personal, but I think the more openness you can bring to those discussions Mm. really helps. The thing that I think is consistent about what I've said, though, is that that safety often doesn't scale. So someone sitting down... The CEO could probably say, we bought this company, I think in hindsight, the way we implemented it was wrong, and I'm going to take responsibility for that. That helps because it sort of models mistakes or, you know, we hadn't anticipated the impact of Brexit being this, and I think, you know, this is why they were making these changes. You can model that at a CEO level. I think quite often, though, it's more about getting into smaller, more, more reasonably sized groups, and, you know, in your team in a team of 10, 12, whatever, saying, guys and girls, here's what the plan was this year. I think this went well, this went badly. And I think having those open discussions where, for psychological safety, you're describing errors as well as successes. Yes. Helps people feel that both are acceptable. Yes, absolutely. I can also see the power of face-to-face communication. So important there as well. Absolutely. And it is something, it sounds terribly old-fashioned, but it is something we come back to time and time again. But I know it feels like old-fashioned, but in fact, as soon as you explore some of the science of how human beings interact with each other, it's the reason why, you know, in my job, I work at Twitter, and in my job, I think the thing that we've all learned in the internet era is the empathy gap that exists with technology. I think we've all learned, and social media's learned it hard, is that when we're communicating through a screen, Often it's not human to presume that the person at the other end is as human as us. That is the sad reality of how we've learned about social media, we've learned about people leaving comments on YouTube videos, we've learned we dehumanise the person at the other end. And that is as true for office communication as it is for people hurling abuse at each other online. Yes. And the more that we can bring humanity back to the way we communicate, the better. And so that is two things. That's schooling people in empathy, and that's a generational, that's a lifetime thing, and that's a wall you'll never finish building. In addition, though, it's about recognising that when we're embodied as flesh and blood, we tend to communicate in a different way than when we communicate electronically. And so any organisation that doesn't discount the value of that conversation face-to-face is going to channel more energy in their environment. Here's a remarkable experiment. A guy called Robin Dunbar, psychologist, anthropologist. He did this amazing thing with rowers. 
he got these rowers and he put these rowers in rowing machines, Oxford University rowers, the big athletic rowers. He put them on rowing machines and he got them to row. And he put a separate group and in a different room, he put them and he said, I want you to row in time with each other. In fact, unless you're rowing in stroke with each other, the rowing won't work. It's on a virtual boat. And what he found was, so this is identical physical endeavour. But what he found was the endorphin levels of those who were in time with each other was double the level of those who weren't. Effectively, that even though we're doing the same thing, when we feel a connection with the people around us, there's something superhuman. It energises us. It makes us do a more complete job. And I think forget that science at our peril. When we believe that everyone can work from home, when everyone can work remotely, we lose something. Now, if you know that, then you can work around that. There are organisations that are completely distributed, that are completely remote. However, you know, I know one organisation, they have an event every three months called IRL in real life and mm-hmm. get them all together every three months, mainly for games activities and sort of encounters with each other. Why? Because it's sort of like one of those cars that you charge up by dragging backwards on the carpet. But, you know, they sort of build up the collective energy. Yes. Then they allow people to go off and do their jobs. But Perfect. the more intentional you are, the more you know that science, you can deal with most of these things, but you need to know the science behind it. Can I just come back to one thing you said there? Because one of the things about face-to-face that we often struggle with as communicators is equipping line managers to do that face-to-face team briefing exercise or to hold those meetings. You mentioned something about empathy and training in empathy. Would that be a good place to start if we're thinking about how to train line managers? I think so. You know, most managers start by thinking what their objectives are rather than where the person they're dealing with is. It's why the skills of coaching actually are a good start point because the point of coaching, it's about asking questions. It's about trying to understand where the person is. And actually, you know, you've seen it. One of the most effective Olympic coaches in cycling had never professionally cycled because they don't need to do that. I was just reading their story yesterday. They don't need to do that. They need to ask the person, where are you right now? What are you feeling? What are the things you not aren't right? And actually that empathy, that coaching seems to be a better way for us to get good results from other people. However, what we normally start with is we normally start with what our objectives are. We're the subject and we treat everyone else as the object. And actually, the more that we can try and imagine ourselves in the subject situation, we can more completely imagine how to transform their situation. That's it. You know, it's why the the discipline of coaching seems so more effective than management. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I've read about Tony Robbins in America, Mm. for example, who can train any kind of Olympic athlete. He doesn't have to know anything about their sport, but he's just very good in getting into their mindset and what's bothering them. And, you know, I think those questions are, you know, they often sort of say, I've watched people training golf swings. Mm. And, you know, literally say, well, how does it feel? Mm. You know, what are you feeling? How would this feel? Mm. And it's just trying to sort of empathise with other people's situation. So what you mentioned before about the rowers in time and those that were doing it together, so more these endorphin levels were spinning around. So this is what you describe in the book as being in sync, yes? That's that connection. So when we're thinking about designing the next team away day, it's absolutely okay to have things on that agenda that just gets people thinking and working and enjoying being together basically. Absolutely. Fundamentally, that's not time wasted. Right. All that people can feel like they are connected as a body of people, it seems like that's not wasted. And in fact, a brilliant scientist, a researcher from Wharton, Professor from Wharton, a woman called Sigal Barside, she did a lot of work looking at when people spent time doing that, when they built up what she called companionate love, when they built up like an affiliation that went beyond just, you know, our normal perfunctory office relationships. And she observed that not only were people more engaged, not only were people more energised, but they're also more accountable. She felt that when people felt a collective bond and affinity with the people around them, they did a more thorough job at times we can imagine that if the team's laughing and joking together that maybe it's at the expense of corners being cut standards being reduced and in fact you know in her examples actually people felt that affiliation made them more resolute to do a good job so you know these things seem to help spending time on the things that almost seem unnecessary but there's a lot of evidence of that a guy called Alex Pentland went out and he looked 
at how people interacted in offices. And he found that it was the face-to-face conversation. It was chat mm. that seemed to power some of the sort of the creative insights, some of the clever ideas. Because people would go over to someone else's desk and they would say, I'm thinking of doing this. And the person would wince. <laughs> and so the next person they went over to and they test the idea out, they'd adapt it slightly. Yes. And they'd say, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. And people would go, okay, yeah, that sounds okay. Why? Because it wasn't the same thing they'd pitched over here. They'd adapted it. And he said, what you observe in office productivity, office creativity, is a lot more like jazz. He says it's these series of sort of you throw something to someone, you see how they respond. It's the way they respond that then energizes and arms your next action yourself. So it's really interesting like how those things work, I think. There's a lovely line in your book about how we think of them as distractions to our work. You know, the going to a meeting, the chat before a meeting, standing around a water cooler, that is the work. Mm. That is when a lot, and it's exactly yeah, what you're yeah. saying there. Yeah, that's right. That's when ideas get tested and people can just collaborate and mm. see what happens. Let's talk a little bit about purpose. And I was just absolutely intrigued by an interview that you did with Dan Cable because you touched on Adam Grant's work around purpose. What he said, I believe, he looked at a call centre. Am I right here? Mm-hmm. He looked at a call centre and he said, and I think this was a call centre of a further education college, and they were. Uh, obviously getting people to sign up to their courses. So those people were raising money for scholarship students. So effectively, if they raised more money, more students could come. And here's the two interventions that Adam Grant did. The first one is he got the bosses to describe one of these scholarship students. This is normally the way we bring purpose into our work, right? The boss stands up and says, everyone, listen, here's the beneficiary of our work. This is Benjamin. If you make more money, he will come and be a scholarship student here. That was number one. Number two, they got one of the recipients of the scholarships to come and speak to them directly. The donations were three times higher when they saw the person directly than when they heard about the person. So I think most of us find ourselves in the situation where we're like, yeah, yeah, we told everyone why we're doing it. Whereas actually the more you can make that vivid and real, the better. In addition, you can go into restaurants and there was a piece of work done by London School of Economics where they showed chefs the people eating their food. So you know that window we have in restaurants? We often think it's so we can see the kitchens clean, but it's actually often so that the people cooking the food can see us as well. When you show them, actually they did it three ways. So when the chefs can see who's eating their food, the quality of the food goes up. Wow. We feel more motivated to do a better job. So, So purpose definitely works. My issue with it is this, is that quite often it's misappropriated or it's used as a way to drive us to do things We're not actually connecting with that final purpose, but it's used as a way to try and motivate people to work over and above what they should normally be doing. The levels of burnout for office workers in the UK, about half of all office workers report feeling burnt out when they're exhausted, they're emotionally overwhelmed, they feel like they don't have the energy for things in their private life. But that's even higher for people in the health service, purpose-led career. Very purpose-led. People in teaching, two-thirds of British teachers, latest stats, two-thirds of British teachers say they're debating quitting in the next five years. Purpose-led career. So purpose on its own doesn't solve this problem. And so my issue is this, you know, so we know that when we get purpose right, it can be the superpower. But don't be reliant on it and actually don't enter into it too cynically. It should be more about, you know, it's why I often say, I guess, purpose very much Simon Sinek, the sort of the business guru. He talks a lot about answer the question why, which is all about purpose. My feeling is to fix work, yes, answer the question why. But you've also got to demonstrate to people how, you know. Mm. So I see this sort of book as a manual of how to work as Mm. well as why to do your job because a lot of people feel like there's this dissonance where you're like, you know, I love my job. I love what I'm doing. I love why we're doing this in the world. But... I can't do this much longer, I feel overwhelmed and exhausted. And I think that's the question. A lot of people feel like there's this dissonance. I sort of should love doing this job, but I've reached a stage where I don't love it anymore. So purpose is not enough. And I can absolutely see that if you're a teacher, a nurse, a doctor, where it's obvious what the purpose is, but purpose also shouldn't be this cynical lever that you use to try and get a little bit more out of someone in a very inauthentic way. And, you know, I, I think... Especially for teams, the closer that purpose can feel to what the team is trying to do. Yes. If purpose can feel like, you know, us six people are trying to do this, 
us 20 people are trying to do this. Nice. 100 people. Yeah. If it can feel like something that's close, it feels like it's more of an energising force based on the Adam Grant research than something that's on the posters, on slides. It doesn't feel achievable for most people in those jobs. It's interesting because a lot of your work and what you're talking about really focuses on what I would call the micro. It really says this is about me and my team and what I can do differently and what matters to us, which I think is so different from a lot of the things we've been doing over as you coming back to what you said before about how we manage engagement starting from the top down and we look at 10,000 people and think what can we do actually what you're suggesting is start small look at what's happening on a local level yeah. and that's it's very different yeah this is the fundamental challenge of internal comms right internal comms we want to achieve homogeneity we want everyone to understand the same message in exactly the same way and i can understand the objective of that the challenge of that is that if you look into organizations quite often cultures witness the fact when we're doing internal engagement scores different teams have different scores every team is different you know like they say every family has its own problems so we need to understand that when it comes to internal comms believing that one message will achieve a universal understanding of what's going on is often difficult and it's why the more you can devolve little bits of communication down to a team level when you go into a brilliant pioneering psychologist amy Evanson, who pioneered a lot of the work to do with psychological safety she said psychological safety exists at the team level not at the hospital level she observed that you know you could have one team where there was loads of trust lots of candor where they were very willing to admit their mistakes another operating team had the opposite of that And that's the reality of most modern work that one guy said to me that he said, the only work culture that's sustainable is one of managed irony. Oh, (laughs) he said, because basically in an organization of 600 people, you hear of this new initiative and everyone's like, okay, spare me. And everyone sort of winces and gets on with what they were doing before. So that's why, you know, a lot of people say that thing where you're not engaged, you wear a mask at work, you sort of put on a sort of a different face. That's what happens. This is the nuance of internal comms. I think you can communicate big themes, but when it comes to the discussion of that and the interpretation of that, I think you should allow teams to try to land it with some resonance themselves. So it might be, guys, we're thinking about flexible working. Here's the toolkit for every manager. Bring this to your team meeting. Spend at least 20 minutes talking, maybe 30 minutes talking about how you want to work together and what your commitment to each other is. And that will land far more sincerely than a slide in the company Mm. presentation, which is like, we're now doing flexible working, chat to your manager about it. And one is a conversation that's owned at the local level, and one is something that feels slightly distant, doesn't feel like if your manager's ignoring it, that will apply to you. Yes, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. I'm just wondering, given the forces that are shaping work, you've got AI now, it's not on horizon, it's here. And goodness knows how many jobs and roles are going to be affected by it, plus the encroaching advances of technology into all aspects of our lives. Can you stay optimistic about the future of work and the possibility for happiness at work, given all of that? You know what? This week I've chatted to someone for a podcast coming up about warehouse workers in Amazon warehouses. And it's like a fascinating description it's quite a dystopian world sort of you know you're given a barcode scanner you're given a countdown of how quick you need to get to the next item wow you're only employed there for nine months maximum you get a strike for day off sick it's quite a dystopian world however there's a woman called Zaynep Tan, who for me is a real inspiration and she's an academic from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and she resolved when she was looking at different businesses so she looked at hypermarkets she looked at Carrefour in France she looked at Mercadona in Spain and what she observed was that they are basically peer group companies but Mercadona sets out to give its employees a good working environment and a good culture and it's twice as profitable per employee as 
Carrefour. She looked at Quick Trip, which is a, a sort of convenience store in certain parts of the US, in Kansas and places like that. And what she observed was that they really pay their workers well, often sort of twice as much as people in competitive places, but they're twice as profitable per square foot as their peer group companies. And so what she said is that, unfortunately, we've allowed the category biggest companies like Walmart to shape our perspective of labour relations. Oh. And we've allowed them to make us believe that labour should be cheap and disposable and we shouldn't invest in it. And she said that's a strategic choice, but it's not a choice that resolutely leads to the most profit. And so her feeling is, okay, you can have two versions of a strategy. You can have a good job strategy and a bad job strategy. And the good job strategy is often less fragile, is often less vulnerable to shocks, you know, Mercadona in the 2008 financial collapse, they cut their prices by 10% because their customers, their bosses, they call them, their customers, they wanted to look after them. They cut their prices and their market share went up in, you know, a very competitive market. Their market share went up from 15% to 20% of the market, massive. And so her feeling is actually good jobs and good culture and good sort of workplace relations aren't a act of altruism. We've reached the stage now where we can be nice to our workers, but more, it's a more defendable, more robust and more strategic long-term strategy. I'm inspired by that. Mm-hmm. And, and Zainab Tan, when her book is brilliant, it's called The Good Job Strategy. It's truly brilliant. For a book about retail operations yes some beautiful moments it's fantastic couldn't be a bigger fan of it but she ended up thinking walmart approached her saying right we want to change walmart jobs into good jobs amazing so she thought walmart employs 1.3 million people in the u.s it's the biggest private sector employer in the world and so she said right okay well if i could change 1.3 million people's jobs at walmart I wonder if in total we could set ourselves a mission of changing 10 million jobs. Wow. Right. And so she then thinks, the evidence is there. Let's try to create this enlightenment where we're improving people's life with evidence rather than allowing this sort of horrible lowest common denominator zero hours thing. So I'm still convinced that humans have got a a versatility that machines haven't got in the short term. And I'm convinced that if we allow the evidence to come through, that the evidence will allow us to improve people's jobs. Isn't there also an argument for saying that in this drive for transparency, whereas consumers and customers and as clients, we're getting ever more interested in not just the label on the front of the product, but how that's produced and what happens behind the scenes? Absolutely. And we often don't notice these changes happening until all of a sudden it's like an avalanche landing on us. In the next year, two years, single-use plastics... You know, we've got this in our head, our single-use plastics. Let me tell you, there's going to be an avalanche on single-use because you can just start to see it starting to topple now. And, you know, it's one of those things, exactly like you say, the welfare of animals, the way that different companies pollute. It's in the corner of our consciousness, but at the very least, people who operate in these spaces are going to see it might not destroy their business overnight, but it'll destroy their profits overnight. It's what happened to to other big sectors where all of a sudden this change that feels like 1%, 2%, 4%, 8%, suddenly it's like, you know, 16 to 32% mm. is on top of them. Yeah, we live in very interesting mm. times. But I'm glad you're still optimistic. That's very good news. I'm going to ask you those quick fire questions. They don't have to be quick from your side. What would most surprise people about Bruce Daisley? I'm not sure anyone's given me any thought about me. I started my life shaking a tin for Greenpeace and it was always my dream to be doing militant ecology and I may well yet go to to do that next is that the next book no no I'm just like you know I I think you know I feel really struck by the present danger that we've got which is you know we've got sort of 12 years to avoid irreversible climate change and I feel like oh maybe I just want to go and do something on that next something yeah I think that's what we're doing not necessarily a book just like activism Sounds good. We look out for that. I know you must have read an awful lot of books, research papers, reports, goodness knows what, for your book. Was there one particular thing that you read that stood out for you? I love the work of Sandy Pentland. He wrote a book called Social Physics. And I think, you know, as humans, we often don't think 
of how systems of humans work together. You know, we look at Anthill, we look at that as a system thinking, but we often don't think system thinking about our own offices. And I think for people in internal communications, while I took a lot of Sandy Pentland's work in my book, I think for me, when I went through his work, it's like, when you read these books, if you read Adam Grant, if you're presented with ideas that you already knew. When I read Sandy Pentland's book, Alex Pentland's book, I was presented with lots of stuff I'd never heard before. Ah, good tip. Thank you for that. If listeners haven't yet listened to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, where should they start? Which episode should they start with? Uh, I've obviously chatted to some big, iconic names, people like Adam Grant, Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Patty McCord, who wrote the Netflix culture document. I've, I've chatted to all of those people along the way. Some of the episodes that are most popular, I chatted to the Chief Constable of Lancashire Police Force. I chatted to Adam Kay, who wrote the best-selling book about the NHS this is going to hurt. So there's a whole variety, and, and the, I guess they're timeless to the extent that you don't need to listen to them in any particular order. You can pick and choose what you're interested in. Do you still get a kick out of it after 80-plus episodes? Are you still enjoying it? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, so I'm going to chat to someone at the weekend who works in the health service, and she wrote a wonderful article about how I'm really cautious of the phrase play, the word play. You know, when people say, oh, you need more play, because I think it sounds a bit beardy. And <laughs> it also it sort of sounds like the sort of thing that sounds like craft beer and play. It sort of, sort of oh, yeah. it puts a lot of people off. But I saw her talking about how she'd introduced play to stressed workers in her hospital. She works in the Whittington Hospital. And she'd introduced little bits of hand clapping games to oh, wow. team meeting, little games. And the stress levels in her team were the lowest in the, in the hospital. And so for me, that's so practical, that's so specific, that I'm fascinated with how you could bring play to a stressed environment there that might have some applications for all of us in our jobs so it doesn't feel too beardy blokes getting lego out but more how we can do things that are relevant to most jobs and so when i sort of get in touch with her when she says yeah, yeah come in i'm like right i'm buzzing about what she's got to say so yeah i love that i'm a participant first and foremost i'm a worker first and foremost so i want fixing work to feel like a practical reality of my job. I don't want to go on a, a one-day training thing where people give you these suggestions that just when you get back to your job, you just don't want to do them. No. And so for me, it's about the realities of work. It also sounds like you're satisfying your curiosity. It sounds like you're just incredibly curious yeah, about this Yeah, but You know, last night, yeah, I spent my evening last night editing this interview I did about Uber and Amazon, the wares. And I sat there and, you know, there's people around me in my house. And, yeah, it was just like I really enjoyed sort of sitting there, eating some food, chatting, but also, like, I, I get my energy from it. Fantastic, fantastic. What would you do tomorrow if you knew you couldn't fail? Well, if it wasn't climate change related, um, I meet people all the time and say, I'm going to start a podcast. And then I meet them six months later, I'm like, how are you getting on with that podcast? Yeah, yeah, I'm just still thinking about it. It's like, oh, really? You know... To start a podcast, you can start next week. It's a bit like when people say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm thinking of giving it up and becoming a writer. No, 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 no. You should be writing and you're giving it up to spend more time writing. Yes. But, you know, the idea, there used to be a time that people say, you know what, I'm going to buy a word processor so I can write. No, no, no. <laughs> you should buy a pen so you can write and you can write tomorrow. And, you know, the computer is how you then take that to the next step. I always think people should get on with doing things and trying things out. Someone I know close to me has got a food idea and they've just got on with it and experiment with it. For six months down the road, you're like, okay, so here's how I'm going to have it packaged. Here's how I'm going to have it manufactured. Here's how I'm going to have it distributed. And doing things is much better than thinking about things and talking about things, I think. Great answer. Great answer. Hopefully lots of inspiration for anyone there thinking, tomorrow I might. Yeah. Okay, so this is borrowed from the Tim Ferriss podcast. You can have anything you like written on a billboard for millions to see. What would you have written on that billboard? That's back to the internal comms thing, isn't it? Yes. The notion that by putting something on a billboard, that then puts that idea into people's heads. I'm not sure communication works like that. Okay. Communication is far more, you know, we've seen things written on buses, we've seen things written on billboards. While it seeds an idea... 
back to the thing that the societal need that we've identified through the internet is the need for greater empathy. How about be kind to people? Sounds because, good. Yeah, because that might, at the very least, if, it, if it's just merely a gesture, then it, that's not a bad place to start. It's a very good place to start. Also a wonderful place to pause and say thank you so much, Bruce, for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And that is a wrap for episode eight of the Internal Comms podcast. Bruce mentioned a number of books, research papers and the work of several academics throughout the show there. They're all in the show notes. Just pop over to AB's website, abcom.co.uk, A-B-C-O-M-M. You'll also find there links to Bruce on Twitter, links to his podcast and his book, The Joy of Work. While you're there, you might like to sign up for I Saw This and Thought of You. It's our monthly newsletter for internal communicators, a roundup of the latest news reports and general goings on in the world of IC. It's also where you'll hear about our live events, future episodes, and in future, receive some bonus content. Now, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on the show and in particular, your suggestions for future guests. Lots of people are getting in touch and I love it when you do. You can share your views on Twitter. We're at ABThinks or you can email me directly. I see podcast at abcom, abcom.co.uk. If you enjoyed the show, I would be very, very grateful if you could rate the podcast on iTunes, because apparently that's the very best way of making us more discoverable for other internal communicators out there. And if you really did like the show and you'd like to make sure that you don't miss another episode, please subscribe via iTunes or your favourite podcast service. All that remains is for me to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. And until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.